So here we go, uh, back in Acts. You're definitely going to need a Bible in your hands this morning. So um, if you don't have one, just raise a paw and someone will bring one of those nice blue ones from the back for you. Okay, someone over here and a few others. All right. So we have um, just five messages to go left in our Mammoth series through Acts. We've begun this whole thing more than a year ago, but we're going to be wrapping it up pretty soon now. And today we're going to be in Acts 18 and 19, and we're just going to dive straight in. So will you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word? We're going to start at chapter 18, verse 24, and I'm going to read it through to chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, and there's a few bits of context in this passage that I'll pick up as we go through the message. So just um, uh, enjoy it, and um, hopefully everything will become clear. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, which is mainland Greece, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him. That's Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, so take a seat. That's what we have to work with this morning. And let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your words. Thank you for this passage in Acts. And thank you for this long journey that we've been on, studying this amazing book, this story of the growth of your church, this story that you are in charge, uh, that you are leading the way, that even though you are in heaven, you are intimately interested in the life of your church and of its people. We thank you that you are interested in our lives, that you are leading us. Thank you for all the ways that we've seen you do it. And we pray that you'd help us to listen hard to this passage as we uh, hear it uh, this morning. Would you speak through it to us that we might be led and encouraged and helped to live the life that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I wonder what you made of that when I read it. This is one of the notorious tricky passages of the New Testament, Um, particularly that last bit. We've got these 12 guys here that Paul meets at Ephesus. Could you knock the volume down a bit? Gary, just on me, I feel a bit hot. Thanks. Um, He prays for them, and the Holy Spirit falls, uh, and they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. And when we hear that, uh, I guess many of us are going to put that in the area of our mental filing cabinet that we call baptism with the Spirit. They seem to go from being just ordinary disciples, uh, saved but 
become powerless and discouraged uh, without any real sensation of God working in them and through them. Uh, And they seem to go to being these kind of super disciples uh, with the conviction that comes from seeing and feeling God's spirit coursing through them. Uh, And a lot of us will have, I guess, maybe heard along the way the doctrine that's built off passages like this um, because these men were ordinary Christians and we're ordinary Christians too, uh, then uh, many of us will have heard that we should expect the same thing, uh, that we should be expecting above and beyond our experience of conversion, which is the point in our lives where either gradually or at some specific moment we lay down our weapons at Jesus' feet and said, I need you to bring me back into relationship with God, that above and beyond that, we should be expecting some kind of second blessing Uh, to fill us with power and confidence, and to equip us to do great things for God. And that idea seems to get extra strength uh, from the fact that this incident in Acts is not the only time that this happens. This actually is the third time that this has happened in the book of Acts. And you might remember these, having we've been through all of them. So uh, in Acts chapter 8, you might remember that group of believers in Samaria. Philip preaches to them, and they're converted. And then sometime after that, Peter and John arrive and they pray for them and suddenly, bam, they're filled with the Holy Spirit in such a powerful and obvious way that we had Simon the sorcerer, you might remember, offering Peter and John money so that he could have the same trick because it was so impressive. So is that baptism with the Spirit? Same thing in Acts chapter 10. We have Peter going to the Roman centurion Cornelius uh, and uh, Cornelius and his whole household hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on them in power, they speak in tongues and prophesy. Uh, So again, is that baptism with the Spirit? Well, the problem with reading these passages this way is that the term, the phrase, baptism with the Spirit, isn't actually used in this passage or in those other passages in Acts. Uh, That phrase is a New Testament phrase. Uh, It occurs seven times in our Bibles, uh, but none of them have got any obvious connection with this idea of a second blessing. Uh, The first four times that it happens, uh, it's in the ministry of John the Baptist. So you might remember this, where John says, I baptize you with water, but when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Then the next two of them are in the book of Acts, but they both refer to Pentecost, to the day of Pentecost, where Peter and Jesus both use that term to refer to it. Uh, And then the last one, probably the most interesting one, is in 1 Corinthians 12, And that's where Paul is talking about the church as the body of Christ. And he tells us that every part of it, uh, whatever different gifts we all possess, every different part uh, has received this baptism with the Spirit. So when you put those seven New Testament references together, I think what we get is this vision of baptism with the Spirit that's just a lot bigger than this whole idea of a kind of second shot in the arm uh, for individual Christians. Baptism with the Spirit is the phrase that the Bible uses uh, to describe the experience of every believer in this new era that we live in now that Jesus has come. Uh, now, we've talked about this idea before of a new era, haven't we, that's ushered in uh, by the day of Pentecost. You might remember that as well from our journey through Acts. Um, the way that Luke sets it up in the story, Pentecost is kind of presented as this enormous tipping point in the whole history of uh, human existence. So before that tipping point, uh, we see the world in what you might call um, foreshadowing mode. 
Everything that we know about the Messiah who's going to come, we see in kind of pictures and prophecies, but it's all a little bit obscure, a bit difficult to work out. But then at that point, when we cross that tipping point, we shift from foreshadowing mode into fulfillment mode. Um, and now we see exactly what all those pictures and promises look forward to. We see the Messiah. We see Jesus. And the Bible tells us that that tipping point also ushers in an important change in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In the Old Testament, the role of the Holy Spirit is to come in these powerful, individual, often time-limited visitations uh, to particular leaders. Uh, But in the New Testament, uh, what we find is that he comes and makes his home permanently in every single believer. And his mission is really simple. It's not that complicated for us to grasp it. Uh, The Holy Spirit wants to make us holy. It's kind of the clue is in the name. So that's the baptism with the Spirit that John the Baptist was looking forward to. That's the baptism with the Spirit that was announced at Pentecost. That's the baptism with the Spirit that Paul says every single one of us possesses if we have laid down our lives at Jesus' feet. Now, none of this is to say, obviously, that there aren't times in our Christian lives where God might bring us to special points of closeness to him or special experiences of the power of the Spirit and equipping for particular tasks. All of us who've been Christians for a while know that that's just the way it goes, isn't it? Uh, God's work in us goes through kind of peaks and valleys according to our need. Uh, In God's wisdom, he knows that people like us who are baptized with the Spirit and who live in the era of baptism with the Spirit sometimes go through times where we need just more of a sense of his power Uh, more of a sensation of his closeness. And he also knows uh, that sometimes it's good for us to have less of a sense of his power and less of a sense of his closeness. And he does all those things in wisdom. Uh, I know that I can relate to both of those things in my life. I imagine that uh, many of you too uh, can as well. Um, So there have definitely been times when I've uh, just felt so inadequate and in need and God has just flowed in to meet that uh, and I kind of look back on it and think, where did that come from? Uh, and it's God's spirit just providing special power for a special occasion. But there have also been times, and for me, I'll be you know, really frank with you, this is much more the norm, where I don't really feel that much of his presence or closeness. Uh, and I think uh, reflecting on those times, I can see that God actually does that for a reason as well. Rob was talking last week, wasn't he, about the fact that our relationship with God is a covenant It's not about what we can get out of it. We actually prove that we're in a covenant relationship with him by sticking with it, even when it's hard. And sometimes he withdraws from us to see, okay, let's see whether you're really in for this covenant relationship. Uh, And when we do stick with him through that, that's a tremendous encouragement and proof for us that actually we are living in that covenant relationship with God. Now, I suppose that we could call the mountaintop experiences that come along second blessings if we want to. I think that that's okay theologically, as long as we're also okay with the idea of third blessings and fourth blessings and fifth and sixth and seventh blessings. I don't know whether you're on your eighth or ninth blessing just yet. Um, The important thing is that the Bible doesn't teach us that there's one once-for-all anointing that shifts us from the ranks of the also-ran Christians to the super-Christians. That's not what the Bible teaches. The baptism with the Spirit is that initial... uh, outlay of the Spirit into our lives, bringing us to life from death. And that's the most important thing. That's the thing in our lives which is pointing us on and up to Jesus. 
That's the blessing that we have that our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament would have envied like crazy if only they could have met us. And what God gives us above and beyond that, or what he takes away above and beyond that, above and beyond that that's his to do, isn't it? You know, the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not be in want. Uh, that applies to our sensation of the Spirit as much as anything else. So our sensation of the Spirit changes over time. We also need to remember that um, our sensation, our experience of God's Holy Spirit working in our lives may be something for us that it isn't for somebody else because we're all different. And I know that I really struggle with this as a young Christian. I don't know whether anybody else can relate to this. But I used to watch other people who seemed to have this incredibly consistent intimacy with God, this sense of God's nearness that I didn't feel. And it left me thinking, well, I'm, I'm really, really glad for you. I really am. But I so, so wish that that was me. And because it isn't me, I wonder whether I'm actually really a Christian. I won't ask you to put your hands up, but I'm sensing probably quite a few people can relate to that. And that can be a really bitter fruit from this whole second blessing idea. Because for every person who experiences the second blessing and then maybe uh, kind of talks about it insensitively, uh, there's someone who's knocked down by that, someone who feels that they are not part of it. You know, this second blessing idea has got this totally unrealistic and ultimately kind of totally crushing expectation of emotional uniformity. Uh, It's got the idea, you know, that the subtext is other people have experienced this thing and because you don't, or because you can't fake it, you're not in. You're not one of the, the crowd of the, the real Christians. Uh, what you see is sparks in the distance from this fire of real Christianity. But it's not a fire against which you're ever going to sit down and warm your hands. Well, if we've heard those messages, we just need to know this morning, they're not true. It's just not what the Bible says. God has made us all different. He leads our lives through different seasons. If we get ourselves fixated on trying to achieve some particular experience that either we've had in the past or that we think somebody else that we know has had, it's our loss because we're missing out on the much richer and maybe more subtle and quieter ways that God is speaking to us every day. Because every day we have the baptism of the Spirit. Every day day we have the presence of the living God inside us. And so every day we can still get up, just like Greg was saying in worship, and commit ourselves to God saying, okay, I want to go where you're taking me, God. I know that you're at work inside me and I want to cooperate. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, I am in. And whether uh, I get an amazing experience with it, whether it feels like thunder and lightning, wonderful if it does, or whether it feels like that still small voice, I'm going to trust you because I know that you know me better than I know myself, and what you're doing is done in wisdom to lead me to be holy and to be more like Jesus. Okay, so hopefully that helps us a little bit as we start, because that tells us what our passage isn't about. So now all we have to do is work out what it is about, right? And then we'll be done. Okay. I think what God wants us to get our heads around this morning as a family and our hearts around is that this passage, just like the other two passages in Acts, which have the same kind of situation in them, is not teaching us that there's some particularly obvious second blessing. No, what these passages are is they are messages from Jesus to his church. They're messages from Jesus to the church in Acts, uh, teaching the church in Acts how he would have that church grow. 
and their messages to our church and to other churches around the world, teaching us how he would have us grow as well. And what I want to do is try and kind of quickly sketch out how that works using the first two times this happens in Acts as a kind of as a dry run, and then we'll dive into our passage to do it for real. So Acts 8. You remember the Holy Spirit, Spirit fell in a really obvious way on the Samaritans. Why was that? Well, if we read it in context, we find that that's the very first time that the gospel went out of Jerusalem to another place, from Jerusalem to Samaria. And we've still probably got the, uh, the words of Jesus, the theme verse for the whole of the book of Acts ringing in our ears, Acts 1.8, where he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we should realize when we see these things that this is a really significant moment. This is the point where the next step in Jesus' big plan for the evangelization of the entire planet kicks in from Jerusalem to Samaria. And we also need to know that this is a super radical step for the gospel to take because the Jews had this incredible hatred of the Samaritans. Really, it was something to behold. Uh, They thought that they were traitors. They thought that they were half-breeds. They considered Samaritans unclean from birth. They wouldn't walk through their territory. They wouldn't let them enter their temple. And so I think that explains why Jesus chose to send the Spirit in this incredibly obvious way. And that's really the important thing about these visitations of the Spirit. It's not so much the sensation that the person who has them receives. It's that everybody else can see it. Everybody else can see these people have tongues and prophecy. Jesus does that in order to send his church a message. He waits till Peter and John are there so they can see it with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears and tell everybody what it is that Jesus has got in mind. Yes, he really does mean it. He is going to send the gospel to the Samaritans. Exactly the same thing happens in Acts 10. In Acts 10, we see Jesus commanding Peter to take the gospel to the nations. So it goes to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Uh, And it's much the same. Uh, God pours out his spirit uh, on Cornelius and his household in this very obvious way because he wants to send the church a message. Peter is there again to see it with his own eyes, to hear it with his own ears and take the message back to the kind of uh, mission control in Jerusalem to say, unequivocal message from World Evangelization Headquarters in heaven, everyone. Jesus really does intend us to take the gospel to the nations. So that's the pattern. That's how this stuff works in Acts. Not everyone in the book of Acts receives the Holy Spirit with tongues and prophecy. In fact, it's very rare. Um, The Ethiopian eunuch, he was converted. He didn't speak in tongues or prophesy. Uh, The Philippian jailer and all of his household, uh, they were converted. They didn't speak in tongues or prophesy. Um, No, these things in Acts are used uh, to give us very specific messages from Jesus uh, to his troops on the ground. And that actually turns out to be one of the key themes of the book of Acts, right? Uh, That though Jesus is no longer physically present with us, he is still in control. He's the commander-in-chief. He's still directing uh, the growth of the church. He's still determining the strategy that he wants us to follow. That's true then, and it's still true now. And in these stories, that's exactly what he's doing. He's not using tongues and prophecy to set up a kind of model for our expectations of normal Christianity. Now, these things are part of normal Christianity, but these aren't the passages we go to to read about that. Uh, We go to 1 Corinthians and other places if we want to learn about that. 
But what he's doing here is he's using them to make it very obvious to the church how he wants them to grow. So that now brings us finally to Acts 19, because there exactly the same thing happens. And we can see straight away that our passage conforms to the pattern, can't we? So we've got a group of believers who experience this very obvious, unequivocal filling of the Holy Spirit. We've got an apostle there to witness it, just the same as the first two times. This time it's Paul, uh, so that he can see it with his own ears. So, sorry, <laughs> see it with his own eyes. Hear it with his own ears. Okay, let's not get that wrong. Um, so that he can pass the message along to the church and along to us as well. And because we've now got used to the pattern, we know what we're expecting, don't we? We're looking at this, looking at this thinking, uh-uh, seen this before in Acts, message to the church about the way in which I want you to grow. And that's all we have to do with this passage, is to work out what is the message. What is it that Jesus is trying to say? The answer is actually pretty simple, um, but it's kind of involved to work it out from our text today. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give it you in kind of summary form up front, and then we'll journey through the text and work it out all together. And I think it'll be fun because it's a really great little section we're going to navigate our way through. But we're going to go for a summary to start with. So if you're taking notes, this next kind of two-minute section is going to be the guts of it. At this point that we reach in Acts 19, the church is just going uh, through a critical transition in its growth. Early on in the book of Acts, the church is really small. Uh, But now, as we're getting towards the end of the book of Acts, the church is beginning to get really big. Uh, Up until this point in the story, the gospel has been spreading pretty much exclusively uh, through the words and through the influence of the apostles and the people who travel with them. So through Peter and Paul and Timothy and Silas, these types of people. But as the thing starts to get bigger, that strategy is starting to split at the seams. And we start hearing about people who you might call second-hand evangelists, uh, people who have heard the gospel from people who heard it from the apostles, uh, people who are one or two or three steps removed um, from the original authentic message. And that's what's going on in our passage. These guys that Paul met in Ephesus, uh, they had been discipled by a second-hand evangelist, uh, by a guy called Apollos. And this is super relevant to us because every single one of us in this room has been discipled by a second-hand evangelist. And right now you're being preached to by a second-hand evangelist. None of us have seen or experienced the ministry of Jesus or the apostles firsthand. And that can be a problem because as we see when we get into this story, in this particular case, when Apollos preached to these guys in Ephesus, his message, his second-hand gospel was incomplete. And so the gospel that these men received was incomplete. And that's the fact that Jesus wants to call attention to here. That's the message. By making the coming of the Spirit on these men in Ephesus so obvious, Jesus is highlighting the enormous gulf that exists between the experience of someone who has heard and accepted an incomplete, inadequate, second-hand gospel and someone who has accepted the real thing. Jesus is saying, Look at the distance that there is between these two things. Look at the transformation that happens when that gap is closed. Jesus wanted Paul to see it with his own eyes, to hear it with his own ears. And through Paul, he wants to pass on that message to us. He's saying, don't let the spread of the gospel turn into some kind of ghastly game of Chinese whispers where it gets less and less like the real thing every time it's passed along. 
do what it takes to make it into a chain reaction where it replicates itself accurately again and again and again. That's the message that Jesus wants to communicate. So now let's see if we can get that from the text. And this is going to take us on a a, a quick bird's eye adventure through chapter 18. Um, So maybe if we can throw up the map here, Gary. Last time in our series on eggs, we were with Paul in Athens, do you remember? Um, I think we're going to get a map in a minute. And um, you might remember that um, uh, Paul had gone to Athens and he'd left his traveling companions, Timothy and Silas, behind in a city called Berea. Um, uh, He was in Athens waiting for them to arrive. And what we find as we get into chapter 18 is that that wait took longer than planned. And so Paul decides to move on to the next city in the itinerary, and he moves to a city called Corinth. Uh, So when we get to chapter 18, verse 2, we find out what uh, the world looked like when he arrived there. So if you take a look at that, you'll find that he meets a couple, a Jewish couple called Priscilla and Aquila. And um, those of you who um, have been doing this Christian walk for a long time will know that Priscilla and Aquila are a big deal in the rest of the New Testament, a wonderful couple. Anyway, this is the first time we meet them, and all we hear is that they have just been exiled from Rome. That doesn't sound too good. Uh, We find that the Emperor Claudius had ordered all the Jews who lived in Rome to leave the city. And Luke doesn't tell us any more about that, and we think, oh, well, that's kind of weird. Why were they kicked out? Well, this is one of the really cool things about the New Testament. The New Testament lines up just point for point with what we know about the rest of that period of history from other contemporary writers. There's a Roman historian called Suetonius who wrote a biography of Claudius Caesar. And in that biography, he records exactly what happened. He said that Claudius basically got ticked off by the fact that the Jews were rioting in the city at the instigation of Crestus, is what Suetonius says. Most historians think that what he's saying there is he just can't spell Christ. Um, this is the first news that we get that Jesus has shown up in Rome. The gospel has arrived. Um, And it's not surprising what happens, is it? Because we've been reading the rest of Acts. We know that uh, often the gospel would arrive in a synagogue, and when it did, uh, that some Jews believed, but many resisted it. And um, we saw riots in Thessalonica, and now we hear that there were riots in Rome. And one of the lovely things about being an autocratic dictator and ruler of the entire world Um, is that you uh, don't have to bother with the niceties of kind of trying to figure out who's responsible or taking people to court. uh, Claudius just sits there and says, oh, I'm having problems with these Jews in Rome. Throw them all out. So everybody goes, uh, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila disappear with the flotsam and the jetsam. Um, There's nothing here in our passage to give us any kind of confidence that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were Christians at this stage. They probably weren't. Luke probably would have said if they'd been part of this a kind of cell of Christians who were causing all this trouble in Rome. Uh, But when they get to Corinth, uh, they're new in town, just like Paul, uh, and they meet him somehow, and turns out that they share a profession. Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers. Paul is a tent maker as well. So they go into business together, and the impression that we get is that they uh, fall into each other's company. They become good friends, and Paul uh, witnesses to them uh, about the gospel of Jesus. So what we find, Paul starts this tent-making work, and he uses that as a platform on which to then go out and start evangelizing in the city of Corinth. Um, And as we saw with the other cities, uh, Paul starts in the synagogue, because that's his normal practice, right? That's the place where uh, he always begins. Um, And just as we saw in the other cities, things start to get pretty hot for Paul. 
uh, fairly quickly. So we find in that first part of chapter 18 uh, that there's some resistance and he has to leave. And at that point, what we would be expecting to happen is that Paul's shelf life in Corinth is now severely limited. Um, Because we've been reading these other stories, we know that once opposition among the Jews builds up, however much he wants to go to the Gentiles, the Jews have got a good way of kind of running Paul out of town. But in Corinth, it doesn't happen. So if you look at chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, something really striking happens instead. Paul receives a vision. It's Jesus. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. It's striking, isn't it? There are lots of other places where Jesus could step into the story of Acts, and he doesn't. And yet here he does. And so we've got to think, okay, the commander-in-chief is entering the theater of operations here. This has got to be significant. And I think the reason why, it's, why he does it is that Jesus is laying the groundwork um, for this message that he's going to send to the church in chapter 19 that we're working with today. So because of this dream, Paul stays in Corinth. And he stays there for 18 months. That's longer than Paul has stayed anywhere in the whole of our experience with him, uh, ever since he began public ministry, even at his home church in Syria. um, He didn't stay there for 18 months. Uh, And what that does for Paul is it allows him to just have a bit of a change of strategy. Um, Because what Paul has been doing so far is he's just been on the evangelism campaign trail, moving from place to place. But now what Paul does in Corinth, because he's bedding down, is he adds to that. He doesn't diminish it. He adds to his work of evangelism a significant work of training. He starts dealing with this problem of second-hand evangelists. He starts training people up so that they are equipped to go and take out the message on their own. And the people that he trains up are Priscilla and Aquila, Uh, not just to the point where they can be useful traveling companions, but where they are able to actually pass on the authentic message of Jesus without losing any of the detail. And that becomes really important as we go on into our passage. So we're not going to get our map, I don't think, so I'm going to have to just talk you through this. Corinth is on the Greek mainland. Ephesus um, is in Asia, and there's a stretch of ocean in between them. Uh, What Paul decides to do after these 18 months in Corinth is he decides to leave. Because he's on a missionary journey, and his home church are probably wondering whether he's still alive. Um, So what he decides to do is to sail back to Syria Uh, in order to go and let his home church know what's happening. But it's striking what happens. If you look in chapter 18, verse 18, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him, and on his way back to Syria, he stops in at Ephesus, and he drops them off there to be pioneer missionaries. He leaves them on their own and says, have at it. Now, this is the point in the story where we meet the third and final character uh, that we need to get our heads around, Apollos. Now, I'm going to quote Brandon Hirth to you here, so you've got to believe that this is true. Apollos in the New Testament is a stud, whatever that means. Um, The New Testament has really nothing bad to say about him. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about Apollos and Peter. He says all three of them are fellow servants of the word. So Apollos gets this glowing recommendation. Um, And this is where we get introduced to him. This is the first place in the Bible where we see him. Uh, In chapter 18, verse 24, uh, you see that he came from a city called Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And he comes up to Ephesus um, after Paul has gone. So Priscilla and Aquila are there. They're beginning their pioneer work. Paul has left. 
and now Apollos arrives. And we're told some details about him, aren't we? Uh, We hear that he was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and that he spoke with great fervor and talked about Jesus accurately. No, No problem with any of that, right? He's a good guy. We don't know where he got this information from. Don't know who took the gospel down to Alexandria. But we do get a bit of a clue maybe in verse 26, because that's where we get the only reservation about Apollos. It says, for all that he knew about the scriptures and about Jesus, he only knew the baptism of John. So that tells us straight away that he didn't get his knowledge about Jesus from Paul or from any of the other apostles who were out and about during the story of Acts. Apollos' knowledge of Jesus comes from somewhere earlier in the story. Uh, Apollos heard about Jesus from someone who had experienced the ministry of John the Baptist. He may even have experienced it himself. Uh, You know, people came to see John the Baptist from far and wide. It's possible that Apollos traveled up from Egypt uh, to Judea and was baptized himself by John. And somehow above and beyond that, he's got accurate information about Jesus. He's heard the stories of what Jesus said and did. Uh, As you would expect from a disciple of John, his preaching is really fervent. Um, You can imagine him, like John the Baptist himself, calling people to repentance in the light of the judgment to come. But also, like John, his information is not complete. We don't get a whole bunch of detail about what his ministry in the city of Ephesus really looked like. Um, And there are quite a few different ways, I guess, that you could try and rebuild it. But here's the one that I think is by far and away the most likely. Um, I think when... uh, uh, Apollos arrived in Ephesus, he didn't meet Priscilla and Aquila straight away. Um, it makes sense. Priscilla and Aquila went to the synagogue, and that's the place where Paul would go, isn't it? And there he, they, he mentored them, so it's likely he, they would go to the same place. Apollos, it seems, didn't go to the synagogue, and that makes sense. Because John the Baptist, if he's following John the Baptist model, John wouldn't have been seen dead in the synagogue. And if he'd tried, what with the whole camel hair outfit and the locusts and honey and everything, I guess he might have got a frosty reception. So anyway, that's the start of it. That's Apollos' ministry. He doesn't meet Priscilla and Aquila. They don't meet him. And we need to give a name to this phase of the story. So let's call this Apollos 1.0, when he's in Ephesus before he's met these others. Now, my guess is that Apollos 1.0 went on for quite a while in Ephesus before Priscilla and Aquila met him. But finally, Apollos finds his way into the synagogue, and that's the point where they connect. Uh, And you can imagine what happened. We see it in verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and when they did, they realized that there were some significant gaps in Apollos 1.0. There's been someone out and about in the city not teaching the complete gospel. And I wish that Paul could have been a fly on the wall for what happens next, because I think he would have been really proud um, of this couple that he's discipled. Remember, they probably only have just over 18 months on the watch in terms of their walk with Christ. Uh, but they have got the guts and the sensitivity to invite this guy back to their home, maybe one Saturday afternoon, uh, and to explain the gospel to him more adequately, it says in our text. Uh, They had the sensitivity to connect with him, even though he was already deeply well-read, and he'd already, you know, uh, gone out and had an extensive ministry. They were able to help him find the missing pieces in his message. And that marks the beginning of the next phase of Apollos' ministry, which we'll call Apollos 2.0. Apollos 2.0 is where Apollos teams up with Priscilla and Aquila, and they go at it in the synagogue. And I I wouldn't be at all surprised if they also made efforts to go back and find the people that Apollos had touched with Apollos 1.0. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Anyway, 
After a while, Apollos gets uh, a sense from God that he feels he um, should be moving on. Uh, He's got a heart for the Greek mainland. We know, don't we, that Priscilla and Aquila are well-connected there. They spent 18 months with Paul in Corinth. So they set Apollos up. Uh, They uh, give him an opportunity to go back to the city that they themselves knew so well. And that's basically what we find. Chapter 19, verse 1, Apollos goes on um, to Corinth. And now this is the point where Paul re-enters the story. If we had a map, this would be so much easier, but I hope that you're, um, hope you're, you're tracking. Paul has been back in Syria with his home church. Uh, he's visited Jerusalem, uh, and he's just typical Paul style. He's begun another missionary journey, the third and final missionary journey. Um, and he's working his way back to Ephesus. And he does it. He works his way overland this time. And it's really striking when you watch him. He goes back through all the cities and towns that he's visited on the first two missionary journeys. So Paul is just, he's an amazing example for us. He's just not the fly-by-night missionary. He's passionately uh, engaged with these people that he's touched. He loves them. Uh, He's exchanging letters with them. He wants to know how they are. Even though his, his name is marked, people have been out to try and kill him in these places. He's really happy to go back because he wants to encourage these churches. So that's his route, and he works his way through the interior back to Ephesus, and he arrives just after Apollos has left. And that's where he meets these 12 guys that we read about in chapter 19. Now, the passage tells us, doesn't it, that uh, Paul asked them what baptism they'd received, and they say, we've only received the baptism of John. Now, I hope that that makes some some sense now. There's only one place where they could have got that right, Apollos 1.0. John hasn't been baptizing anyone for 25 years. Uh, The place where he did his baptism was 800 miles away. There's no way that these guys in Ephesus could have known anything about the baptism of John but from Apollos. So these guys are the small remnant of people who were left behind, who heard Apollos 1.0 and never got the upgrade, never heard Apollos 2.0. They never got to hear Apollos preach after his conversation with Priscilla and Aquila. They still thought Apollos 1.0 was the latest release of Gospel OS, um, and it wasn't. Gospel OS had moved on significantly. (laughs) Now, I imagine meeting these guys must have been a kind of sobering experience for Paul, don't you think? Up till this point, Paul's whole missionary career has been in a context where he has laid the groundwork. And this is the first time that he comes out somewhere and finds uh, what it looks like when someone else has done the, uh, put the initial foundation in. It's not all bad. He finds that his trainees, Priscilla and Aquila, are absolutely rocking. They've done an amazing job rescuing the situation in Ephesus, which could have gone really bad. They were able to pick up Apollos in Apollos 1.0 mode uh, and shift him into Apollos 2.0 mode. But when he met these men... And when he witnessed what happened to them, when he explained the gospel to them fully, and when he saw incredibly obviously the Holy Spirit fall on them in power, I think the message that he received must have just been abundantly clear, don't you think? It was as if Jesus was taking him back to that dream he experienced in Corinth again, telling him to stay in Corinth and train people. Jesus was showing him that if he kept doing what he had been doing, just moving from city to city, hoping that he was going to be able to do all the evangelism that needed doing himself, the spread of Christianity was going to degenerate into Chinese whispers. And Jesus was determined not to let it happen. And credit to Paul, from this point onwards, 
this new emphasis on equipping other people with the accurate gospel that they can pass on to others became the heartbeat of Paul's ministry. Listen to the advice that he gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be qualified also to teach others. So why is all this important for us? Well, I think the first thing here is that for many of us, I think this should be a call to thankfulness for God's work in our own lives. And maybe this is something that we can do as we worship or uh, take home and uh, sit with a partner or a friend and just take some time to thank God for his work in our lives. Because I imagine that there are many of us who have experienced in the past the damaging effects of a second-hand gospel. Uh, And we now have some of the joy of these Ephesian disciples in being rescued from that and knowing that we're no longer there. Um, I thank God ever so much for the church where I became a Christian. I became a Christian in a tiny little village church in England. um, And uh, I'm just, yeah, so grateful to him for finding me in that unlikely place. But now I reflect on it, I realize that there was a lot of Apollos 1.0 in what I received there. There were some major missing pieces, and so I'm grateful that God brought some Priscilla's and Aquilas into my life to help me find my way onto the right track. See, in that church where I grew up, I didn't hear anything about sin. I heard a lot about being saved, uh, but no one ever told me quite what I was hoping to be saved from. And the problem with that is that you end up loving Jesus a little, but not a lot. Not loving him the way that we should do if we know how much we've been forgiven. And I dare say I wouldn't have gone on with God if I'd just carried on like that, unless he'd intervened uh, and seen to it that someone explained the gospel more adequately to me, as it says in our passage. And there are loads of other second-hand gospels out there that some of us have been freed from. For some of us, God has brought us to a more adequate understanding of the gospel from what you might call a gospel of attendance. This is the whole idea that Christianity is about just kind of marking your card every Sunday, saying the right things, learning the right responses. But that's, we've got to know that's a long way down the chain of Chinese whispers from the original gospel of Jesus. For some of us, God brought us to a more adequate understanding from what you might call a gospel of cheap grace. This one has got a little bit more of the Jesus story in it. Jesus the Savior is there. Jesus the, uh, uh, the, um, the sacrifice for sin is in it. But it gives us this terrible false confidence that it doesn't matter what we do because Jesus will just forgive it. It doesn't matter if I lie to my parents. It doesn't matter if I cheat on my partner. It doesn't matter if I bend the rules at work because Jesus will just forgive it all. I just drop my money in the slot on a Sunday and up pops a clean conscience. And that's a second-hand gospel. It's a million miles away from the heart of God and from the joy of actually walking with him. It's a million miles away from what it feels like to say, God, I see where you're going, and I see it's so much better than where I am, and I long to be there, and I don't have the strength to do it on my own, and I need you to help me and lead me. For some of us, God has brought us to a more adequate understanding of the gospel from what you might call a a gospel of Jesus, the inspiring example, rather than Jesus, the Savior. And this one has got almost all of the Jesus story in it. Jesus, the inspiring example, is right there in the text. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, do not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, etc. Since Christ suffered in his own body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, etc. 
Jesus is an inspiring example, but he's so much more than that. And the gospel of Jesus, the inspiring example, misses out all of those essential pieces. It completely misses the point that if we try to follow Jesus, the inspiring example, we find we just can't do it. And if we carry on going that way, we find it just drives our pride down further into, a, into the ground like some kind of vast stake or foundation when what the real gospel wants to do is just rip it right out. And some of us have been rescued from these places. We're not there anymore. And that's amazing. That's a cause to bless God this morning. It happened because Jesus is still at the controls. Jesus is still the, commanding in chief, the commander-in-chief in HQ in heaven. He's guarding us and leading us away from these things. And these instructions that he sent to the church in Acts to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth and to see to it that we guard the gospel and pass it on in the same form that we received it, those instructions are the thing which has got us to the place that we are and we owe him our thanks for that. But seeing that and thanking him for it, uh, we also need to realize that it gives us a responsibility as well. Individually, we need to look at our own lives and ask ourselves how effectively now, how accurately am I passing on the gospel that I've received? If one of our friends or neighbors uh, asks us uh, or we get into a conversation with them about Jesus, are they going to hear the real thing or are they going to hear the Chinese whispers version? Now I have a little um, kind of gimmick for you here. Do you remember these things? This... um, Kim and Steve Dykstra and Brad did the most amazing piece of industrial archaeology for me this week to find one of these. Um, I guess they used to be everywhere in the 1980s, but now everyone's ashamed of them. Anyway, I have a real one here this morning. And you know how these work. This is the thing where you you put your hand in, you see exactly the impression on on the outside. Now, this is kind of what our passage is saying. It's saying we need to uh, be people who are able... uh, At some point in our past, we've had the gospel pressed into us. Does the absolute accurate replication of that gospel that transformed our lives now show out on the outside in the way that it does with one of these things? Or is our life maybe a bit more like a balloon, you know, where we've got the gospel pressed into the back of it somewhere, uh, but out on the surface, what people can see, it's not making any difference at all. Jesus' vision for the church is that The gospel that's been pressed into us, however it happened, whether it happened through our family or through our church or through friends, whatever happened, his idea for us is that that gospel should be showing out accurately on the surface through our words and our actions today. He doesn't want us just to kind of swallow it down so that it's nourishing us on the inside, but no one can see any evidence of it on the outside. The reason why Jesus spoke so clearly to Paul through this incident in our passage is because he wants us to show out the likeness of the thing that transformed us so that other people can be transformed by it, can be transformed by it as well. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. Uh, it doesn't have to mean becoming a missionary, although it can mean that. Uh, it might mean simply just being a great dad, um, someone who just sees to it that their kids see every ray of the light of the gospel that they themselves have seen. You know, in what we choose to read to our kids, uh, in the way that we approach the uncertainties of the future and what we allow them to see of it, uh, in the way that we handle our own failures, do we let all of that be a mirror of the gospel that has transformed us? It might mean being a great Sunday school teacher, 
studying every week just to make sure that uh, the gospel message that has transformed us, that we're able then to pass that on to children in a form that they can love and see and appreciate and remember. It might mean being a faithful friend, just sticking with someone through good times and bad, modeling what we've known of God's character in our own experience so that maybe for someone who can't see it themselves because of the mess they're in or their difficult circumstances can at least see it in us. So it has implications for us as individuals and it also has implications for us as a church. You see, we need to heed this call from God and we're trying to do it. We want to be a church. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could be the church that's like uh, what Paul was doing in Corinth, that people could come to us like Priscilla and Aquila and in 18 months be sent out from us, equipped not just to teach the gospel, but to drag it back onto the path if things have got bent out of shape somewhere. Wouldn't that be a gift to the world around us? And that means that we need your help and we need your patience as we try and go for that. Because it means our Sunday services aren't always going to look like they look in other churches as we focus on trying to uh, make sure that we know what the gospel is uh, and we make space to commission people and send them out. It might mean that our midweek groups don't look like they look in other churches as we have this kind of uh, heightened emphasis on training. But again, that seems to be Paul's heart here, doesn't it? It might mean that we uh, cause some discomfort by continually putting the emphasis on our street corner. Um, you know, it would be easier to have things which are more community-focused, uh, you know, where there are less unknowns. But again, that's not faithful to this kind of text. And we're doing all this stuff just because we want to be obedient. Jesus is still at the controls. He's still summoning his church to increase the reach of the gospel without diluting its quality. He doesn't want it to generate into this absurd game of Chinese whispers. He wants to see it kind of go nuclear. He wants to see the gospel spread in a chain reaction, accurately replicating itself from person to person until it reaches the ends of the earth. So let's pray. God in heaven, we bless you for your work in our lives. We just thank you. It's not from ourselves. Thank you, God, for the times that you have stepped in, that you've guarded us from secondhand gospels. Uh, God, that you have seen to it that over the years the true message about Jesus has found its way intact and pure and true down to us. We thank you so much for the way that you've transformed us. And we, God, we just want to say sorry for... Um, the times where we haven't let it show, Lord, where what shows on the outside of our lives is so much less than what it is, the wonderful, amazing message that has transformed us on the inside. And God, we repent of it, and we pray that you would work in us, work by your Spirit, God. We're willing, but we need you to, to do that, to impress that shape on us, so that we might then be able to impress that shape of the gospel on others. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is what we're going to do right now. Um, far be it from us to be 